Hi, I'm Julie Bowen. And I'm Chad Sanders. Welcome to Quitters. Today on Quitters, we got to talk to Caitlin Bristow, who was a bachelorette, who was on Dancing with the Stars. But her quits were, to me, really, really interesting. And I loved, I always love it. You and I really rejoice when someone says, I'm going to say something I've never said before. It just means like the conversation's getting real. It's like we go from... FM to AM or something like that. It's like yeah. a slight channel change. It's interesting. She shared, she was so confident about sharing what she said. Like she wasn't, it wasn't a secret, but she had just no. never said it before. So it was really, really interesting. She's very comfortable being challenged. She's, I think she has a real confidence underneath her. I mean, it's right there. Mm-hmm. And I counted, I think, four things that she talked about quitting. Mm-hmm. So if you, can count those four things and comment on our Instagram with them. That'd be I will, awesome. I will write and DM you a haiku. A haiku? Yeah. Is that your, you doing haikus now? I have never done a haiku since fourth grade, probably. Is it five, five, seven, five? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. I All like right. It. So get a haiku. Um, here she is, Caitlin Bristow. We met before. Yes. How are you? But Chad, you have not met. So we have not met. I am Chad. Hi. Hi, Chad. Nice to meet you. You got a pretty cool background, too. Oh, well, I'm kind of sick of it because I've been it's been the same background for me for the last like five years of podcasting. So uh, I'm over it, but I'm glad you like it. Are you going to do a refresh? I'm going to. Yeah, I think I'm going to switch because my fiance has an office upstairs, but he's actually going to get his own like office space outside of the house and his is much bigger than mine. So I'm going to move up there and do a little revamp. Thank you for being here. Oh, oh um, my gosh, thank we're, you. No, thank you. We're going to talk to you about probably a bunch of stuff. You do a lot. You're an entrepreneur. You are an artist. Uh, you're a podcaster. And you dancer? also like your dancer. I mean, you do a lot. You're a uh, podcast studio designer. And <laughs> <laughs> you gained a large platform, you know, from being on TV did you ever feel like, am I allowed to try to do all these other things and to participate in all these other things? Or do I have to like stick to the thing that got me here? That's a really, actually, I've never been asked that question before. And that's a really good question. Bam! Uh, we're so excited when that happens. That's really good because uh, I've done so many interviews and so many podcasts. So that uh, that's right out of the gates. Great question. And yes, because... I think, I mean, the majority of us uh, suffer from imposter syndrome. So Mm. uh, like myself, I was this, you know, little naive Canadian who didn't know anything about television or the entertainment world. I got thrown into this reality show overnight and I've watched the show since I was, I don't even, whatever it started. And so I just, I didn't know there was such thing as evolving into a businesswoman or person or having a brand or an empire out of uh, a show like The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, you know, I've seen people maybe go into uh, like ET Entertainment and be a uh, host right. on there. So I was like, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm probably going to be the drunk girl night one that gets sent home and who knows what's <laughs> going to happen for me. So I thought when I came off the show, I've got 15 minutes. I have got to like make hay while the sun shines and I need to stay in my lane. And I thought that was being, you know, a personality on Instagram. And when I went on The Bachelor, it was just start Instagram was just starting to like really blow up and be like, oh, there's something here. You can like maybe make this into yeah. um, making money for a little while or create a business. And so I was like, you know, I was the bachelorette. I was on the bachelor. I'll stick to talking about that. And my whole life, I've kind of never been inside of a box. I've, I've always been um, a risk taker and did my own thing. I worked three different jobs and I was kind of all over the map. So I felt confined once I started doing that and sticking in this one lane. But I, again, had that imposter syndrome of, well, am I allowed to do something else? Like, I'm not Carrie Underwood. I don't have Carrie Underwood's voice, but I love to sing. Could I just put a song out there and see what happens? Because I love to do that. And I started to like kind of dabble a bit in other things and saw that the audience and and the following and people that were like intrigued in my life other than The Bachelor, The Bachelorette were becoming supporters and kind of encouraging me to go after 
other things. So um, at first, yes, I definitely felt that way. But after a couple years of being curious and wanting to explore other avenues and stopping, you know, kind of caring too much about what other people thought, I started really enjoying other things too. So that, that was, was a really long answer. That but was yes. exactly <laughs> what I wanted to ask because you said I started to notice that people who were following me, where I was getting more followers who were encouraging me to do different things. Are there things that you dropped along the way that because you didn't get that kind of support? Or are there other things that you want to pursue in the future with that idea of fuck what other people are saying? I'm not reading the comments anymore. I actually get a kick out of reading comments um, because I think it, it yeah. actually depends on it, well, it depends on where I'm at in my in my period cycle. Because if I'm at <laughs> that time of month, I'm like crying in a corner and being like, I care so much about what other people think. But um, <laughs> other times, I feel like the majority of people are so kind that when I see a nasty one, I'm I kind of hold um, now in my life a place of compassion for them, where I'm like, wow, they must be like something's wrong. Like right. that's that ain't right. So I'm looking at it through kind of a different lens. But yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, I kind of came into my own a little more throughout the years of doing what I love to do and what makes me happy. And I dropped things that weren't authentic to me because I think people can see through that. And I think part of why I I hate tooting my own horn, but part of why I was a success story from Bachelor and went into Bachelorette is because people were like, oh, she's not like every other Bachelorette we've had. She's not the girl next door. She swears she has tattoos. She like says inappropriate things and she's more relatable and so I found that when I was trying to stay in in a lane, I like, for example, when I first got offered money to promote like a flat tummy tee, I was like, you're going to pay me what to post? I don't care. I'll shit my pants all day for this kind of money. I'm sure. Flat tummy tee. Great. And then people were like, I don't think this aligns with who you are. And it was kind of like my team, but also my audience that was like holding me accountable to drop the things that didn't align with me. An audience is so circumstantial. As I'm, I'm learning that an audience is so circumstantial. I think I have even been under the misconception that, you know, a million followers means there's a million people who I can sell something to. And that's not true. How do you measure and understand the value of your audience? Well, it's taken a lot of ups and downs and lefts and rights and figuring that out for myself sometimes the hard way. But I'm really lucky to have had uh, a team that kind of knew what they were doing in the digital space where they were friends of mine before. So it felt like they always had my back and they kind of encouraged me to uh, listen to and use use your audience, use your followers to see what people, people like and what they don't like and take polls and listen to them. Because of, as much as you have to stay true to who you are and promote the things that you really believe in. You also have to listen to your audience's constructive criticism. And you can you could tell the difference between like a hater and constructive criticism and what people want to see and when people are just trolling. And I think it's really important to pay attention to that and and see what your audience wants, what they're craving, what they're enjoying. And, and what's really nice and refreshing is I feel like people want uh, honesty, talk mm. about mental health. People, people are really craving the stuff that I want to give them right now. Right. So it's, it's, I feel like the audience is kind of, you know, we all used to love the bachelor and bachelorette and the drama and the cat fights and the real housewives. But I feel like people are really craving connection at this time, which is really cool. Mm. Yeah. Do you think that's a fun function of us all being locked up for so long and that it doesn't, it isn't as much fun to see these, these staged cat fights, you know, it's manipulated in editing, whether or not the things you said were your own, the storytelling is created by editors. When you would watch yourself on that, how much did you recognize of, of you or did you not watch yourself? Oh, I watched. Uh, <laughs> I I watched and was so surprised just because, again, I didn't understand editing or television and I didn't know anything about it. So I was like, how did they do that? Or, Wait, I didn't say that about this. I was shocked, but I was also fascinated because I was a fan of the show for so long that I was like, this all makes sense. And a really cool example is when I used to watch the show, all the women got... Uh, the more I got to know them, the more beautiful they became. And right. when I went on the show, I said, at what week, at what point, you know, we're down to like the final six, at what point do we start getting professional hair and makeup? And they're like, you don't. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. It just means that I started seeing people and thought of them as more beautiful the more I got to know them and like them. Interesting. And I thought they were on this reality show just getting like everything, hair, makeup, and wardrobe when really you're just doing it all yourself. But it was really entertaining to watch as a fan of the show and see myself on it. But of course, there were times where 
I, I was mortified. I laughed. I cried. I have like a good perspective, or I did at the time, uh, of watching myself on TV because I feel like I was at the the peak of my mental health, like happiness at that point in my life. I had done so much therapy because I had come out of like a terrible rock bottom and I'd worked so hard on myself and that it was perfect timing for me to go on TV because I was in such a solid place in myself and who I was. And I was like, I don't care. I don't care. Now it's interesting because fast forward to seven years later, I care more now right. than I did uh, seven years ago when I didn't know anything about it. It's it's really weird. Why? Why? Mm-hmm. You have more to lose. Am I right? Yes, a part of it, I'm scared. There's more to lose. I also feel like at this, I was an edited version of myself where now you've really gotten to know the real me. So I feel like I'm like more offended by you not liking me because I understand not liking an edited version, but I don't understand because I'm like, I'm just being myself. Right. It's a weird world. But yeah, I feel like that is a a true little statement of more to lose. (laughs) So when, when you talk about coming out of a rock bottom, are we talking about after you had broken up with the, with the hockey guy? Yes. Caitlin had been dating a guy when she was in her twenties, who was a hockey player, went to Germany. And all we know is that you felt like you lost your sense of self. And as the name of our show is quitters, I was particularly fascinated with this story. Like what made you give up that moment? What made you give up being with him and Germany? And what made you hit that rock bottom and quit being in that bad place? You know what? I'm going to share something that I've never shared with anyone before, not even Thank on my you. own podcast. I was just about to ask if you will please do that and yeah. however you tell this story. My, honestly, the moment is when the cops were actually called on me for being not like verbally, like I, they could hear screaming coming from a room Ooh. and that's Ooh. not me. I'm not, I, I'll like raise my voice or get, I'm feisty. I'm feisty. Right? But this was like a broken human being. And I was scared for who I was and who I was acting like. I felt like a child having an out-of-body experience, like temper tantrum. And I never thought like, oh, someone's going to call the cops on me. Like, I, that's not me. And so when we had a knock at the door and it was police being like checking in on us, I was like, this is not right. Something's not right. This isn't me. I was 97 pounds. Mm. I was so just a shell of myself. I realized like, I always thought, you know, living the dream as a Canadian, I'll marry a hockey player. I'll be Mm. set up for life and we'll be happy and it'll be great. And once I started living that idea of what I thought was going to be my life, I lost myself uh, slowly, but surely. And I didn't have a job. I didn't have any money. I didn't have friends anymore because I had moved um, overseas and lost touch with everybody because I was kind of depressed. I couldn't even understand um, people in the grocery store. Like I felt so alone. He was always on the road. Girlfriends of the, or the wives of the hockey players and girlfriends kind of had their own clique and I didn't speak their language. And I just like couldn't get anything going for myself to the point where I joined CrossFit, which I don't do CrossFit, but I joined it just because these guys that owned the gym were American and I could hear English conversation and I didn't feel so alone, but I was just a complete shell of myself. And I thought he, he's either leaving me or I have to leave, even though I truly think like, I I don't have anything negative to say about him. He was actually probably like the love of my life for a long time, but I was like, this is not how somebody should live. And when we got separated and he texts me and just was like, when I come back, you, you can't be there. And I was like beside myself, but I knew it was the right thing. And I had to at the age. I'm sorry. When you, the the police separated you from one another. They made him go stay at a hotel. And let me just be really clear. There was no physical abuse going on here. This is, this is all just me having a full blown temper tantrum. And So, uh, yeah, we were separated and I just thought, you know, he'll come back in the morning and we'll talk through it. But like, this can't go on. But when I realized it had to end in that moment, I had to fly to Phoenix, move back in with my parents. And when they picked me up from the airport, we didn't even go to the house. We went straight to a doctor's office because I was, I had just lost myself completely. And I know it always sounds so dramatic when it's a breakup, but like, 
it felt like a, the biggest loss of my life. And I had nothing going for myself at an age where I thought like, it's over. So I had to go to a doctor. I had to fill out paperwork on how depressed I was. They put me on medication and I just laid in, you know, at the age of, I don't know how old I was, 27 on my parents' couch with nowhere to go, no home, no job, no money, and super depressed. As much as you are comfortable sharing, what What's happening in a room where the police come that's not that's not violent? Like what sparks an argument of that decibel level that I don't even remember. I it felt like at that point it was just another day, another argument. I I don't remember what exactly escalated it, but I'm sure it was something of him saying like you've got to figure out something in your life. Like you've got to get mm. a job or you've got to do and I mm. just felt so like how, how am I supposed to do any of this when I'm just following your career and I'm following you and what you need to do and it's your life. And I'm just like this prop that's like bouncing around to everything he needed to do for his career. And I'm sure it was something because that was usually <laughs> what it was. You sacrificed so much to be like in his life in the way that he wanted you to be. And then he shamed you for not also being someone completely different. I think what he saw was me becoming a shell of myself and he knew I had things going for myself and that I could do something and he knew doing something would actually fulfill me rather than just following him. So I think it was guilt. I don't mm. know if he was necessarily shaming me. I think he felt guilty for me having to live this life that clearly made me miserable. Kaylin, you end up in therapy. You end up on medication. I'm a huge advocate of, of all of the above. Any kind of help that you can get mentally, it's so important. And I am very woo-woo about all of this right now. And I believe that when <laughs> someone's tantruming like that and has lost themselves, it's really a younger version of you that's taken the wheel. It's some five or six-year-old part of you that has literally just like kicked the sensible Caitlin to the back of the bus and is just driving down the wrong side of the highway at 100 miles an hour. That seems to resonate with you. How did you, had you quit her? What was the process of making sure that you were you got back to the front of the bus? Well, when I decided like I can only stay on this couch for so long until I'm like even more of a shell of myself. Like there was there was either go I don't even know how you go more rock bottom than that or pick yourself up and start mm -hmm. going again. So I started working at a restaurant again. I had to like start as which I'd worked my way up in a restaurant before and like I was really not enjoying that time. And I don't have, I didn't have any education except for high school. I thought I was going to be a dancer like my mom was, a ballerina. And I chose to go after a dancing career, quit that for the hockey player. So I was like, mm. I have no education, no job, no money, like nothing. And so I started as a hostess again at the restaurant and moved my way up. And as I did that, I kind of had to put my ego aside of being like, okay, you have to start over as a hostess. Like, who cares? You're going to make new friends. I made new friends. I got an apartment. I started over. I built myself back up. And I did tons of therapy, tons and tons. And that's why I say when I went to go on The Bachelor, I had just done three years of like, I mean, twice a week therapy of learning where those patterns came from. And that I didn't actually learn coping skills as a child and working through that. And then coming out of The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, I was like, I got to continue this journey. And I'm actually going, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Hoffman Institute in California. No. But it is, oh my gosh, it is a week of actually diving into your inner child and doing really deep, intensive therapy with no phone, no TV, no computer, no work, just a week of, and I did eight to 10 hours of uh, paperwork essentially online uh, about my childhood, about my, even though I, I can look back and say I had a wonderful childhood. I actually don't think it could have been better. I have two parents who were just incredible still to this day. And, but when you dive deep, you, it doesn't matter if you have big T trauma or small T trauma, um, everything affects who you are as an adult from your childhood. And so I'm actually doing this retreat in January, at the end of January, because I'm still learning so much about myself and how, you know, I talk therapy, I encourage it all the time. And my therapist always says to me, because I had the exact same kind of life story as far as going, my parents 
loved me. They protected me. I had a very privileged childhood. Why the hell am I fucked up? That's not, I, there's no finger to blame in that way. And she said to me, the greatest thing anyone's ever said is death by a thousand paper cuts is still death. And it is really profound to realize that it that doesn't have to be big T trauma that can trigger something so huge that feels unmanageable for me. Yes, unmanageable is a good word I, because you go back into that childlike self and it happens to every human. We talk about therapy on this show a lot. It comes up pretty much in every single conversation. I think part of that is because we talk to a lot of rich people, talk to a lot of white people, talk to a lot of women. And and, and I think that, you know, it's it, it has to come up in this conversation because it's real. Like people are going to it. I'm finding that we are all on some level becoming like uh, like armchair experts. Like we're becoming like these therapy evangelists who are speaking, like we're not therapists, like we're not experts. And we encourage certain behaviors and we encourage going and doing the things. And like, we talk about it like we really, really know what's going on in the human brain. And I, and I, it makes me a little, I feel like alarmed at times, um, even in these conversations. I don't know that I have a question here. It's just a point of view. What do you all, what do either of you think about that? I think that's so fair for, I always think of, I never think of myself as an expert when it comes to pretty much anything except for maybe wine. But I, I find that I like to think of myself. I I didn't own a house until I was 30, let's say two, I don't know. And I, I moved into this house thinking, you know, like you buy a house and that's it. You that's pretty much what more could you ask for? But then slowly this pipe bursts or this AC breaks or there's a crack in this wall or there's a leak here. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I am my own home. My body is my home. My brain is my home. And I am always going to want to fix things and work on things. And I'm not just going to be a full perfect house and, and, that's it. My life will forever be a project the same way a home is. And I always like to think of my brain and my body as a home and that I could work on things and things could be really great. And I could feel like I've got it all figured out. And then something's going to happen where I'll constantly have to work at that. And you'll never be an expert on anything. So you have to always rely on the people who are educated and the people who can help you in those ways. And as long as you're taking care of yourself, thinking like, there's always going to be something that comes up in my life. And it's, I've learned this through my, like the ways I've learned how to cope uh, is you just always have to be able to rely on people who are the experts and, and just continue to work on yourself. Like you would, you know, a house. Do you think it's uh, dangerous, Chad, that we talk about therapy? No, I, I, I think the tone is dangerous. I think the tone is so sure-footed. It is sure-footed <laughs> in a way that to me signals, uh, like, um, what's the opposite of sure-footedness? When anybody tells me something with such security that it feels like like they are teaching it to me, I'm I'm curious sometimes. And honestly, Caitlin, I'm not. You are you are like such an you have such an airtight confidence that like I am only doing this in this conversation with you because I don't think every other guest would be able to like hack it, hold space yeah. for it. I'm I'm. It's I really just like 100 don't know what I'm talking about. No, but you do. I mean, but you do. And I'm not I, suggesting do even that you own, don't. Yeah. In my own capacity, like to to my knowledge of what I know, I'm sure in what I know, there's so much more to learn. But in in what I've learned through, you know, therapy, and I like to use other resources like podcasting or listen to certain things, read books. Uh, I feel like I, I'm just at a, a point where I know and I'm sure of what I've learned and I know there's so much more to go and I would never put on somebody else what I think, like what well, what I did and here's what I did and here's how I right. got through it right. and that's how you should do it too. I'm mm. always just speaking personally from my whole experience. Yeah, I think no, that I it's respect just, it. It's just tools in the toolbox and like if somebody's listening yeah. to this and doesn't have access to therapy and doesn't have access to energy healers or the Hoffman Institute or anything else, they can still find support in some way or another to examine their past traumas that may be informing their current behavior, however that works for them. I am sure. 
very privileged in the way that I get to explore myself and learn about myself and love myself. I can only speak to that, obviously, because that is my experience. You're the curator of your own media intake on social media. You can follow accounts that inspire you. You can follow accounts that help you grow and learn and mean something to you. And that's that's free. You can there's Facebook groups, there's support groups in your city. Like there's so many ways to go out and access it if you want to. And I know that's not as easy as just doing that. That's a freaking terrifying thing. I'm just so, I've become so empowered by it that the first time I ever went to go to my first therapy appointment, I actually went into the wrong building and it was um, like a, a mental institute and it was in Vancouver. And I walked in and I said, this feels right. Like, I I just don't know which door to go in here. And I was so terrified and so scared and I was in the wrong building. But like, I was so terrified and insecure and wildly insecure about the person that I was at the time. You were dealing with an addiction to Valium at the time. It was also addling your brain, your perception, how you were dealing with life. What made you quit doing that or know that it was time to quit? And how hard was that physically, emotionally, mentally? Oh, yeah, it was... I mean, that was, I'm, I'm lucky I wasn't addicted to it for longer than I was that I feel like, well, my family and my friends were kind of like, is this really who you want to be? Like you just, you were wanting to get out of being a shell of yourself and now you're just a numb version Mm. of yourself and you don't even want to, like, I'm a very social person and I was not social. I was just wanting to be numb. And so yeah, I, the doctor, like he gave me Valium and I understand why, because on paper, it definitely looked like I needed something at the time. But he was also putting me on antidepressants and Valium. And it really, I started getting weird side effects where if I turned my head this way, my vision wouldn't catch up. Mm. Oh, and like, I, I, it was like I was in a dream constantly. But the, what's the scary thing about addiction and, and that kind of thing is I was like, this is good. This yeah. is good. I don't, I, it mean, it means I'm not feeling the things that I was feeling before. So it was kind of my family and friends that were like, again, this isn't you. This isn't who you wanted to be. You went from being a shell of yourself to being a numb person. How can we help you out of this? It, it was more just having a good support group being my friends and family that kind of talked me out of it. And, and it was choosing other ways, you know, like I got sick from coming off of it because I tried to just come off of it and I didn't know the proper way and nobody taught me how to wean yourself off of these things. And I tried to like go do yoga class and I would get sick, but I wanted to change it. I wanted to move my body and get outside and do certain things and transition into just like, you know, not not relying on a pill or something else. But I was probably doing that for about four months and it took me a good two months to come off of it. Was there anything you did that was there any moment where you're like, wait, what am I doing? Where where like you had to face like, oh, I'm addicted to this. Whoops. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm I Can you whoopsies. describe it? <laughs> whoopsie. <laughs> whoopsie. <laughs> it was I I'll never forget I went to my parents lived on the well, my at the time they were renting a place on a golf course and I went to go golfing. And <laughs> I love golfing. And uh, I went and I was like, actually, I'm just going to go drink a beer and take a Valium because like that just seemed more appealing to me than feeling and going through a golf game. And when I went and did that, I remember sitting at the table and one of my friends was across from me and he looked at me and he was like, are you even here right now? And I was like, no. And he was like, I don't, I don't want to do this. Like this, this isn't fun for me anymore. And I'm like, isn't fun for me either. And I was like, what am I doing? And then I went home and cried and slept, of course, because that's what it did to me. And I woke up and I remember that moment being like, I got to stop this. Um, Like my friends and family don't even want to be around me like this. What did you see like on his face? Was it uh, fear? Was it sadness? Both. It was total fear when he was asking me if I was there. Like, are you like, it was fear. And it was kind of like, I was like, not really. And then it was, he seemed just like sad for me. Oh. And I don't I, I I don't think anybody likes being pitied. Uh, and I remember in that moment being like, "Oh my gosh, I never want somebody to look at me like that again." Yeah. Is, and what what is value? What does it feel like to be on value? It felt like nothing nothing mattered but being comfy and and numb and like you were kind of in a dream but you just didn't really like nothing phased you and you just wanted to like 
I don't know. I always just wanted to sleep, to be honest with Mm. you. I always just felt Mm. like really numb and tired. I liked it for like the 10 minutes of the like, like woo that you get. And then I just wanted to sleep. And that's all. I wanted the time to pass by sleeping. And how did that feeling... I don't want to like shoehorn this, but like, how did that feeling compare to what it felt like to be in your relationship before your kind of spiral? To me, that felt glorious because to, to feel so, I felt useless as a human being, being with him. And again, that's on me, not him. I just felt like I had no purpose. And that's to me is a, is a much worse feeling than just feeling numb because numb is not feeling anything. And to me, that felt so good to feel nothing when I the other feelings that I had known in my life were just like empty, sad, depressed, anxious, unworthy of anything. Numb was way better than that. And at the mm. risk of sounding like, uh, like you know, like someone who, who is preaching or knows what they're talking about, but when you're in fight or flight and you're in all that adrenaline, which you were, it sounds like you were really in with a boyfriend in Germany and everything, that that it is, it is a different part of your brain that is actually taken over. It is your most primitive brain and it is not rational and it can't be reasoned with. And it, it you can't talk, you can't calmly talk someone out of that place. It is, it's like a cornered animal. And there is a place for things like Valium to help you transition from that animal brain to a place where you could talk and, and get out of that crazy cycle. But at the same time, it sounds like, sounds like it went a little far for you. Well, I wish I could have been coached mm. better by a doctor or by other people who like knew, but it felt like more like, here, take this. You're not well. And we'll see you if you need to come back here. Like that's, and what was really scary is I saw myself going down that same path after being the bachelorette. I, I, that really took a toll on my mental health. And I, then again, speaking of tools and, you know, having the knowledge and feeling and going through what I've gone through, I, I knew I'm not going back down that road again. And I could see it starting and the spiraling happening. But that's starting where I... Starting how? It was because when I came out of it, again, I was like coming off a high of like, I was the bachelorette and I was put on this pedestal and these guys wanted to date me. And then I come off of it and I'm like, wait, I don't have a job again. I don't know where I'm going to live. I'm in this in-between period where I don't know what my life is going to be. I'm engaged to somebody who is completely shaming me for everything I did on the show. And and that's supposed to be my like rock at the time, my person, the only other person that could understand what I was going through. And I was just kind of getting it from all angles. And again, I started, well, I'm not going to go out and I'm not going to, I'm just going to stay in bed. And I'll just, you know, my friend has lorazepam, I'll just get something if I need mm. it. And I started going down that same um, spiral mm. again. I was able to stop myself um, and still be able to feel and still be able to go through a really hard time and um, a time where it wasn't my happiest and and without completely numbing myself. So it that was a win for me. So it sounds mm. like you've had some quits that were really good and, and, and turned the beat around and, and getting out of this shell sort of person, this like skinny Valium doubt shell person was really good. But I want to go back to something you glossed over very quickly, which was that you quit dancing. And I made a, I like scribbled, good quit, bad quit. It, you quit dancing and you thought it was going to be your future. Can you walk us through what that, what happened there and what it meant? Yeah, I think that has a a lot to do also with certain things I still struggle with to this day, which is, you know, I I struggle with body dysmorphia and things that I went through as a young girl standing in a ballet studio being stick thin and saying like if you have ballet arms but like your bottom half is you know like being told what your body should look like and then standing in the mirror with all the girls we would line up and compare bodies at like Oof. 13 years old and I mean, I danced six days a week. My mom was a professional ballerina. It's what I wanted to do. She had her own dance studio. And I was like going to follow those footsteps. I loved it. It made me happy, the dancing aspect of it. And so when I graduated high school, I actually got a scholarship to go and dance um, with a company in Vancouver. So I moved there and I was like committing my life to dance. I That's why I worked at a restaurant so I could have the proper hours to do dance training. And then, I mean, after I, I got... 
rejected with everything I did in dance. I was always a no. It was always a no. I, di- I, w- I just wasn't good enough. And being hurt, being told you're not good enough however many times, it does, you know, give you thick skin to a certain extent, but it also makes you feel like you're not worthy. And so when I met the hockey player and had the option to just, you know, go live his life and he made great money and I could, you know, quit dance, I could maybe just do it as a hobby. It just sounded like, okay, this is a good transition for me. So I quit and and I'm actually not, it was not a bad quit because I do think it wasn't going to lead me anywhere. So I'm I'm glad I did at the time because every I I just believe in divine timing and things working out and I'm so glad for all the things I get to do now in my life and and that wouldn't have happened without that but it was hard to give up a passion going on the bachelorette when I came off the bachelorette and they offered me dancing with the stars I was like oh, I yeah. could still be a dancer and at the time I actually they didn't let me go on dancing with the stars because I was still under contract with bachelorette and they told me I couldn't they were like, no, we're not going to let anyone from our franchise do the show anymore. And then five years later, they actually asked me to go back on. So I, it was more than just like winning the mirror ball. I was like, I am a dancer. I know this from Sarah Highland, my my TV daughter. We, we, yes. we met at her wedding. Love. Um, yes. She was a ballerina. She was a bunhead. Uh, all growing up and going to school. And there's a part of her that I could see like click in. And she's the first to say this. I must be at a school where she'll be like, if I can't be the best at that, I'm not going to, I don't want to do it. And then I would see that same determination sort of kick in when like she had surgeries and she had to get her body back after these kidney surgeries and everything. And that dancer mind of, and it's, it's rigid and it's, and yet it was also, she loves that and she loved her past with dance. Do you relate to that? And that sort of like, if I can't be the best at this, I don't know. I I can't even touch it because I love it so much. Yeah, I actually couldn't watch Dancing with the Stars or So You Think You Could Dance or any kind of dance show because I watched and thought like, I wasn't good enough and that bothers me that I wasn't the best and that I'm not on one of these shows that I like actually couldn't watch. It made me sad. Not only just feeling like I couldn't do it, but sad because I missed it. And it was like, it took up my whole life. So when I went back and, you know, ballroom's very different from all the other dancing I grew up doing, but being back in a dance studio and being, you know, having that coach figure and a teacher and somebody that was pushing you to be the best. Like I, a lot of people I talk to who have gone on that show, it's like, that's that's the hardest thing I've ever done. And they push you so hard. And I'm like, they really, they really do. And I mean, Artem was really hard on me, but I loved it. And I don't think I would have won without the hard work and without him just like drilling me for seven hours a day. Uh, But you have to love that, you know? And I did. Wow. And, but you still don't consider yourself a dancer. You dance. I always considered myself, I was a dancer growing up and that I wasn't good enough to make it as like, you know, what I wanted to do, which was tour with musicians and backup dance and do all these things. But then once I went on Dancing with the Stars, and even if I won or not, I feel like I would be like, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. Because I'm like, I I guess I'm not a professional dancer, but I do consider myself a dancer. Good. I love that. I love that answer because, again, life is in the gray. It's not black and white. You're not just a reality star or just a dancer or just a podcast host. You live in the gray, and there's a lot of options in there. Caitlin, I want to circle kind of back to a place that we started, which is, I mean, Julie just hit on it. You're you're like a multi-hyphenate. Uh, you're an artist in different dimensions. You're an entrepreneur. You obviously are a celebrity. Like, what is money like in all of this stuff? Like, do you get paid to be on The Bachelorette um, when you come off and people start offering you sponsorships because of your Instagram platform? Like, what's like, what is the money journey through all of these different dimensions of your life? Yeah, it, that was, I mean, again, coming from a world where I was, you know, I made, I made okay money. Well, I shouldn't even say that. I I was serving at restaurants and trying to work my way up in a restaurant. And to be honest with you, I struggled to pay my rent almost every single month. So to come off of a show, 
Um, you don't get paid to go on The Bachelor as a contestant. You don't get mm-hmm. paid unless you're the lead. You have to bring all your own clothes. Oh. You don't know how long you're going to be there. You have to quit your job, but not know if you're going to be like, eh, back tomorrow or back in 11 weeks or what your life's going to look like after that. So it's a really high risk, high reward kind of move. And you also don't know how they're going to portray you. And some people can't get their jobs back after that. So I was in a position where then they pay you to be the bachelorette. But what was fascinating about that too is they don't pay the bachelorettes the same as they pay the bachelors. What? Nope. Are you kidding? No, no. The show is called The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, but they pay the bachelor more than the bachelorette. How did you find this out? Just through, I mean, a quick Google search and also talking to other people that were past leads. And I had known how much The Bachelor made the year before me. So I said, because they also, they usually have one bachelorette, one bachelor, but on my season, they had two bachelorettes and they said the men are going to decide who they want to be the bachelorette. And Chris Harrison, the host, I'll never forgive him for this. He goes, who will be a better wife? And I was like, a better uh, what wife? A better wife. <laughs> and I go, what am I doing here? And the girl that I was competing against was a friend, but they wanted to pit us against each other. And Ouch. I said, I'm not doing this unless you pay me the same as you pay your bachelors. And I got close, but yeah. How much? I mean, how much do they How much do they pay the bachelor? Well, well, it's, well it's Googleable. Depend. It's different for... You can Google it. If it's it, Googleable, it's, then we can say it right I'm here. T- I'm the most open book I will tell you anything. Um, my my fiance also has a podcast where he has open discussions about money and and what people make, especially coming out of TV. So Love for it. the bachelors, well, let me actually say this: Emily Maynard, they wanted her to be the bachelorette so badly, um, and she, I don't think she really wanted to. They actually paid her the most out of anybody, and that was I think two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. But most bachelors get paid one twenty. And I think some bachelorettes get offered like 40000 What? What? And that's for and how much work? That's for how many weeks of work or whatever? Well, I mean, it's... You've already taken off however many weeks, like 11 weeks to be on The Bachelor, then a, a period of time where it's airing where you don't know what you're going to do, then mm. taking off another 11 weeks off. But then you have to do media runs and everything after. And so... A long, it's a long time, and they should actually pay everybody way more than that. But they only—that is what they pay you for the for like all of your services for the Bachelorette or the Bachelor. It's all about negotiating. So, like some people, uh, my, I was again lucky to have somebody Penny Thou. She um, kind of knew that industry, so she set me up with an entertainment lawyer, which I would have never thought to do again because right. I didn't know anything about this. So um, it was kind of all in what you're willing to negotiate. And I know they said to me at one point, we thought this was about love for you, not money. And I was like, don't try oh, and pull that. That's disgusting. You that's gross. Ever. Yeah, a lot, I could tell you a lot of gross things that they that's said. That's fucking but, shameful. Please do tell us. Well, I, I like, again, I've said everything I've gotten. I don't, I'm, I couldn't get in trouble now. I'm not under contract, but I've gotten in so much trouble with this show and I don't care because I, again, them telling me I couldn't go on Dancing with the Stars. They, they, the the creator of the show told me, no, you can't do it. And I was like, but you just let The Last Bachelor go on. And he was like, yeah, well, I'm not I'm not having it anymore. And then the next season, the guy from my season was uh, The Bachelor. He goes on Dancing with the Stars. So they, as you can see the pattern here, they really favor their men. But yeah, I think it's all about like if you can negotiate and if you don't let them, you know, manipulate you into thinking you're a bad person for asking for more money. It's it's kind of because they are making money off of you. They are absolutely yeah. making money off of you, off your image, off your likeness, and I'm sure you sign away any everything that happens while the cameras are rolling. You don't own a minute of that. Were you ever able to say, "Oh my gosh, please, I really, please don't put that in"? There, yes, but I mean, again, if it was in the contract, it, the one thing that my entertainment lawyer helped me with was to say. I, I said, I don't want any hidden cameras or any hidden microphones um, because that scared me for just like, you know, if I'm in my room by myself, I don't yeah. know. what the, I don't know. And so yeah. that I used to work at Google and I quit. And for about three to f- maybe like five years, if I'm being honest, I was really scared of Google still. I was like, 
they're going to read my Google Docs. They're going to have all my files. They're going to know if I say anything in public that's disparaging of them, they're going to sue the piss out of me forever. And I'm very sure that they spend a lot of time not knowing that I exist. But <laughs> I need to ask you, do you still fear or or have a respectful fear of anybody that worked for or, or on that show as producers, anything? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and what? why? Tell me about it, please. I really have stood up for myself in a lot of ways when it comes to being scared of getting in trouble or using my voice. Like I've tried to go the way of like, this feels right to me and I feel like I should be able to say this. But of course, still a fear because, for example, right now, I really am trying to create a TV show and pitch it. I'm, I go back and forth on being like, I... I don't want to be the person that goes, well, I don't want to bite the hand that fed me because there's a lot of bullshit that comes with that where I'm like, well, I, I, do, I don't want to like dismiss where I where I got my start from. And I want to be... Oh, hello. Oh, wow. Oh, somebody <laughs> heard food. <laughs> somebody heard the hand that fed me. The hand them. that fed me, yeah. He heard my tone. He was wow, like, that's I didn't adorable. protect her. <laughs> Thank you, baby. <laughs> He's actually going to make noise in the microphone. Lay down, lay down. What a pumpkin. Down. Hey, lay down. He's so His name's Pino. He is he an a angel. He's, a he, he's about three. He's so Word. cute. Oh, oh my God. Gosh, he's like, so sweet. He protects you so beautifully. I love I'm gonna it. I'm going to bring my dog in here at the end. I love it. Wait, so you're, you were saying that you didn't want to bite the hand that fed you. But if I, I just want to say it wasn't like you were starving and they were giving you a handout. You gave them, you sold your services, your face, your body, your personality to them. So this was... Damn. This was an interaction. This was an exchange. You're right. I, I, And again, like, I just always want... I do want to be grateful. There was a big period of time where I was angry at that show and I was hurt by things that they did to me and the way that I was manipulated because I... I know now I'm, I feel like an idiot, but I completely trusted producers and TV people because I didn't know any better where now I'm like, oh, you took advantage of me. You totally, but again, that's, you know, I did sign the papers and I did sign up for that. And so it's a very, um, I get really confused and I go back and forth on like being grateful, but also holding space for myself to also be upset with how I was treated. And then now still being, you know, a little bit scared of, certain people because they can shut down um, ideas or things that I want to do, but while also still being like, well, I want to stand up against that. And and I can if I want to, because a lot of really crazy things were done in that show that people don't know about. Do you think there's a place you could get to? You already have a giant platform. You already have multiple businesses. You already have like, I guess just like, when can you not be afraid of them anymore? If you like I stood up when I was still under contract and I called out the creator of the whole show on being sexist. Yeah. No, I think you're brave. I think you're brave. I'm just like, when does that little, I'm asking for myself. I'm asking for everybody. Like when yeah, do we get to like no, that last little shred of fear? Like when do we get to set that on fire? Yeah. I got to that point where I, cause I didn't have much to lose at the time. And then I was like, well, whatever, I'm going to stand up for myself and I'm going to say what I think. And I did. And yes, it caused, ruffled some feathers and it caused a little bit of chaos. But once they saw, like, a lot of people come off that show and need them. And I tried to go in a different direction where I was like, I don't want to need them. I want to be grateful, but go on my own. And when they saw that I was doing everything that I wanted to do on my own, they actually came back around to me and had me come in and host uh, two seasons of The Bachelorette with another girl. So then I was like, oh my gosh, I got to speak my truth and say what I was thinking. And I I actually got rewarded for being honest and standing up right. to the person that I thought was being shitty. And then I got back into like, I, everyone called me the outcast of like The Bachelor Nation because I was always just calling people out for their behavior. Then I got to a place where five years later, they were asking me to host The Bachelorette and uh, now it's kind of like that relationship became like okay again, where I'm like, I don't even know if it's worth it for me to like, I, like I already feel like I've said everything I need to say. And and I'm I'm just now more fearful of, you know, there's something I want to do and I'm scared of it getting taken away from me. Can I just say, 
totally straight. If they think they can make money off of you, then they will buy your idea. Yeah, it is right. all you did. Did you show up drunk? Did you ever cause a problem during production? I, I'm not saying speaking your truth in your mind and 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 speaking truth to power because they were sexist or not fair. I'm saying like, were you a, a pain in the ass to work with? Probably not. Well, a, as the bachelorette, probably a few times, yes. But <laughs> every other time, no, I was actually quite easy to work with, except for right. a few times. But, but yeah. I mean, they, they are, if they think they can make money off of you, there will, you can find a job and you can pitch jobs because they, it is a give and take. It is a commercial exchange. And I'm not saying that with any like disdain. I'm like, that's the, that's the job we're in. Even if they feel, and again, I don't know the answer to this. Even if they feel like this gives them power to take that away from, they don't actually care about that. It's all just money, right? It's I think all it's how, money. Yeah. I think it's, it's how Larry and Sergey at Google think about me, which is. Right. You're not right. At all. You're right. Like, well, you're right. The, the truth is, if somebody, if you are a valuable commodity as a writer, as an actor, as an artist, as anything, they, there is going to be someone who's going to trade with you. So if your idea is good, and, and I have no idea what your show idea is. And by the way, we over at Bone and Sons Productions would love to hear it. Um, there's <laughs> always... There's some place that's going to buy it. That's really good advice too, because again, obviously you know so much about that world and I really don't. So that's really helpful advice. I Thank you for that. I ask myself and I ask anybody else, you know, what do you do if you win the, you know, the Powerball tomorrow? Because that's what you should be doing today. That's what we should all be doing today. And I think this is the hardest question for most of us to answer because we're so busy meeting needs, paying rent, getting to the next thing that, to answer the question, what do I really want to do with my day, with my time? That's a hard one. That really is, because I I don't know if I even know the answer to that. Like, I, I have a bucket list journal that I kind of try and put myself into that mindset of like, like bucket list. If I had everything in the world that I wanted, what would be on this bucket list? And it changed very much so from five years ago to now. Like five years ago, I would have been like, I would buy a private jet. Well, I still probably would do that. I would want to do all these things. But now my bucket list has turned. I think I'm I'm really scared of losing my parents, if I'm being completely honest. And so now all my bucket lists have turned to, I want to take my dad to his favorite golf course in the world. I'm going to take my mom to Italy. I want to take my sister on an African safari. I want to like do things as a family because I'm realizing the older I get, I'm like getting more fearful of losing my parents, which I've never felt before. But that's mm. so beautiful. Look at who you really want to be. You are a joy. And I mean that I would love to hear anything that you have or be a sounding board for um, your production ideas or whatever it is that you're you're going through right now. That means so much to me. And I will say I've done a lot of podcasts and this was like a conversation I truly felt was meaningful. And like I learned a lot and I took away a lot and I love being challenged. And this was um, one of the coolest podcasts I've ever done. Amazing. Thank you so much. We're so grateful for you squeezing us in. We know you're super busy. We oh my gosh. So, no, thank you. Honestly, it was it was my pleasure and I appreciate you making space for me. Thank you. Thanks, Caitlin. Thanks, Caitlin. Okay, bye. bye. 